Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number five, and I'm Eric Armstrong, and I'm the acting area coordinator at York University in Toronto, Canada, and I teach voice, speech, text, and accents. Uh, with me here today is Phil Thompson. Hi there. I am Phil Thompson, and I am uh, your equivalent in some ways at the University of California at Irvine. I head our graduate acting program. I teach voice, speech, and et cetera, just like you. Great. So uh, we're back doing another episode of Glossonomia, and as you may know by this point, we have a fairly uh, predictable pattern to these shows. Each week we alternate between a vowel and a consonant. This week we're on to a vowel, and we're going to discuss that sound in depth. So um, we're going to we're going to dig in, and next week we'll go back to a consonant. This week our sound is the sound heard at the ends of words like happy. Uh, so we have that uh, vowel that's usually represented by Y. It's kind of a weak E sound. So um, as we work our way through, we're going to cover ideas that arise about the nature of how sounds are made and the theories that are behind them and what, why they behave the way they do in words and in syllables. We're going we're gonna to cover the different versions that crop up in different varieties of English, and, and we'll hopefully give you some history about that sound. So... For instance, we might give you a little bit of the history of how that sound might have existed before the great vowel shift occurred in English in uh, around 1450 to 1750. Those those kinds of big changes that happened to the English language. Yes. So uh, this this sound, the the happy sound, that that final e, um, we we use that word happy because uh, I guess of something called a lexical set. Yeah, um, Phil, you want to remind us what those are? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love saying this to my students because lexical means word and set means set or group. So it's a group of words, and uh, that actually demystifies things a lot. It's a group of words that share, for the most part, uh, a pronunciation. And uh, these were come up with by J.C. Wells, uh, John Wells, who designed them or, or named these sets in order to talk about how accents vary. So he needed a way of talking about the way a word was pronounced without resorting to the individual pronunciation in a particular accent. He chose RP, received pronunciation in England, and general American in, in the United States to find references uh, for these groups of words. And in his book, Accents of English, he sort of uh, calls himself a cheat a little bit on this particular one. Uh, he he has mm. chosen these vowel categories, uh, chosen the words to name them because they're monosyllables and they're fairly stable in their pronunciation. Uh, so we've talked already about fleece and kit. They're happening in stressed syllables, whereas happy is happening in an unstressed syllable. And uh, so he's he's chosen this to talk about something that happens because the syllable is unstressed. And in English, unstressed syllables undergo a bit of a change and they relax a little bit. So we could call it a weak 
foul. Mm. So, uh, in, in some people's minds, this sound is a weak version of either the fleece sound or the kit sound, depending on which accent you speak in. Yes. So, you might be someone who says happy, or someone who says happy, um, or someone like me who says the sound sort of halfway in between E and E, uh, particularly as I speak quickly, and that sound comes perhaps not at the end of a phrase. Um, I'm more likely to have a sound that's sort of adrift between E and I. Absolutely, and uh, because it's weak, because it's unstressed, it's often difficult for us to turn our eyes into the void and look at it. Because when we look at something, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, we put stress on it, we put emphasis on it. And so I, I find that my students have a hard time figuring out how they actually realize those unstressed e, e sounds because the minute they take a look at it, they say, happy, and it becomes a different sound because it becomes a stressed sound. In fact, that was probably the earliest piece of computer phonetics I ever did when I was a graduate student and I was told that there was a particular pronunciation of that final sound. I went home to the Macintosh that my father had and uh, recorded the sound and slowed it down so that I could mm -hmm. hear it very carefully and slowly. I've been using that technique ever since, only with better and better software. And what did you discover? What was your sound like? My sound was really a tense kit, I would say. It was, uh, I, I probably shouldn't say tense because it seems to contrast with weak. It was halfway in between and in a straight line on the vowel chart between E and I. So let me travel that distance. And I think we did this when we talked about kit. If I were to suddenly slow it down, I'd say happy. Somewhere in that range is where probably most of us are doing that sound. And I'd say I was in the happy, just outside of where I would think of it as one or the other. In fact, it was an odd little uh, perihelion. What do you call that point in uh, Lagrange point? between two uh, orbital paths, I, I found myself really stuck, not being able to hear it as one or the other with any consistency. And that, I think, mm -hmm. exactly matches what most of my students' experience is. So the, the challenge is that for, for uh, us, if it's in an area that falls between two, two uh, turfs, if you will, yeah. that E has its own turf and I has, has its own turf in the vowel space, um, that uh, uh, demilitarized zone between them uh, is uh, a, a difficult spot for us to actually hear uh, a distinction, a, a, a real quality of. Uh, I do think, though, that for most North Americans, that when you ask them to look at it and they turn their attention on it, their assumption is that it slides into the E zone, whereas for some people, when they turn their attention on it, it it clearly goes to it, and they would say happy uh, as opposed to happy. Um, and that perhaps could be a dividing line, is that if your perception of it is e or i, um, whether or not it's articulated as e or i, um, that, that could make a, a, a difference between two, 
to access. Yeah, I think that's a great point because there's variability even in an individual speaker's realization of sounds. And so our perceptual model is a great way of marking how the accent differs. Mm-hmm. So the difference between strong and weak vowels, I think we've, we've kind of gone into yeah. that idea. Um, now, of course, this E sound um, can happen perhaps in other places in words other than just at the end. When John Wells created this lexical set, he really was talking about a sound at the ends of words. Yes. Um, I think other phoneticians have taken this idea and, and discussed it a little bit more in terms of other contexts. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Phil, would you talk a little bit about the formation? What's your, your mouth doing when you yeah. make that sound? Uh, we, we have, because we've uh, talked about fleece and talked about kit, we've talked a little bit about uh, both of the possibilities. But certainly what's shared is that your tongue is arching up towards the palate, towards the front of the mouth. And the, uh, as we mentioned before, certainly some parts of the back of your mouth are, uh, uh, back of your tongue are moving forward perhaps, but the main closure that makes this sound is an arching upwards. E- uh, you can feel your tongue rolling forward like a wave there. And as I think I mentioned before, it's, it's sometimes very useful to inhale through that shape because the cool outside air will sort of cool the area that's most closed. I think I also mentioned in a previous episode that uh, the y sound that we make, uh, that we usually spell with a y, that we haven't dealt with in the podcast yet, is another form, a most tight form of that articulation. So the tightest version is e, which is arched forward and maybe some lip corner spreading, although that's certainly not necessary. And the more relaxed form is simply less arched. I think I ought to go into a little bit the possibilities of lowering or retracting. And to do that, I think I have to talk briefly about the vowel chart. The chart that we often see listing the various vowels looks like or is a map of a cross-section of the mouth with the position of the main closure marking where on the chart the the sound is. So it's possible to arch more forward, it's possible to arch more upward, it's possible for that arch to move backwards towards and still be very high, or to be low, And you can hear it starts to go into the phonemic territory of other sounds. So uh, let me take a little journey around. I'll start in the highest place, and I'll use the word happy. Happy, happy. So I'm lowering now. I'll go too far now. Happy. If I go back, I get happy, which is kit. If I go up from there, I get happy, happy. I'm probably doing a little bit of extra tensing because I'm less comfortable making that sound. That's a pretty broad territory, but it is share it shares this arching upward, arching forward, and generally lip spread condition. If you are familiar with the chart, so it's basically the range of possibilities in that upper left hand corner is pretty broad. Yeah. And I think it's a very helpful tool for an actor to 
you know, if you're learning an accent quickly, uh, it's one of the questions you should always ask is, how is that happy final Y pronounced? Because they come up fairly frequently in speech, and uh, they can be sort of a, a, a little flag that denotes the nationality of your, your accent or dialect that you're speaking in. Um, so in terms of spelling, um, historically we have essentially two groups. The traditional final Y spelling, as in itchy, angry, silly. We have IE spellings that you would encounter in words like sortie or boogie or movie. Or final I spellings like in fettuccine, linguine, martini, bikini. <laughs> if you know the slap chop commercial, um, that's, uh, that final E. Of course, linguine is not spelt with an I. Um, but, uh, the, those are all, of course, loan words with final, uh, vowel symbols. Um, then, uh, we have the, the other group, um, and they are spelt either EE in words like coffee, or EY like honey, or EA as in Chelsea. Um, and those, those, uh, sounds perhaps historically would have been pronounced differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about that, Phil? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, we talked about this in talking about fleece and kit separately. Uh, there are a set of these that are akin to fleece uh, that would have historically been pronounced a with a neutral central beginning moving towards that arching. Uh, so if we were to think about the way uh, Shakespeare might have been pronounced, uh, two households, both alike in dignity, so alike and dignity, are both forms of E which have undergone this little shifting, this great vowel shifting. Uh, what's interesting to me is that in early modern English in Shakespeare's time, alike and dignity were homophones. The, the, the vowel was the same. But I, I would say because of the weakening of that final sound, it shifted back towards E and didn't continue. In fact, retreated. So if we started with alike indignity and moved to alike indignity, then alike moved towards alike, alike, and opened up, but dignity retreated and, and became simpler in a way. Otherwise, we would be saying dignity. Do you live in this city? Uh, mm. Which would probably require more emphasis and energy than we are wanting to make in that syllable. Right. The, the other ones, uh, again, as we mentioned before, in vowel shifts, it's a do-si-do because uh, as one vowel space is uh, left open, other vowels might shift in. So a sounds, face sounds, uh, tended to shift towards e. So we talked in fleece about meat being met, and it slowly shifted towards meat. And so the word lee, L-E-A, findly, is a, a word that is a name that is constructed out of Finn, whoever Finn might have been, and his field, Finn's lee, mm. or others. That little E construction that would have been an A, so we'd say findle, 
move towards E as well. And that's why some of those EA pronunciations or even AY or EY pronunciations have shifted towards happy. Right. Similarly, words ending in C endings like Chelsea or Swansea yes. uh, would have been ze, uh and so Chelsea or Swansea uh, ultimately have shifted towards E. Um, so, uh, you know, Y endings, I-E, I-E-S endings, of course, the plurals of, of those are going to have this sound. Um, similar, if you have the... the uh, Different modifiers, happier, happiest, or uh, a gerund ending like hurrying, um, we're going to get that reduced version of the vowel. Um, now, could we say it would be in prefixes like react or preoccupied, deactivate or uh, demigod? Those, those are, again, they're, they're weak E's. Um, and people can say them with the i version, so react, preoccupy, deactivate. I think it's a good piece of evidence that they're operating similarly, that my students who have a, a pretty fleecish happy also have a pretty e-ish react or believe. Uh, they're more likely to put both of them in a similar position, mm. uh, whereas... Uh, somebody who says friendly reaction would probably make them both a bit more in the kit territory. Right. Similarly, words like he, she, we, me, be, uh, they, in their weak forms, are also going to be realized in essentially the same uh, articulation. This, you know, uh, will, will she do it? If I'm using that i sound, will she do it? Um, now, I, I do think that there are people who use that ing ending, the, the gerund or present participle, um, as in singing, where they tend to say more of an ing sound. I don't think that's the same process going on. Do you, do you yeah, agree with I think, me? Yeah, I think that the major influence there is the nasal consonant, and there's a, a shifting of vowels because of their proximity to nasal consonants that is very common in California uh, that is happening in this case. Uh, there was a discussion again on J.C. Wells' blog that I brought into class and there was widespread harumphing saying, I do not say king. Uh, I, I, I need to make the distinction. I would say king and I was suggesting to my students that they might say king for the royal leader of a country or running uh, they objected uh, at first, then we recorded them and played it back, and they had to admit that they were shifting, they were tensing or shifting up towards fleas. But again, that's something that they're doing because of the, part of, partly we're hearing a bit of it because of the nasal quality that's creeping into the vowel, but I think also it's part of their articulation that they're tensing it up, uh, surrounded by, or, or when preceding nasals. Mm. The sound that you might hear in words like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, in some people's accents, yeah. is also like this. You hear some people saying Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, with a, a, a D-like ending. And I believe that that 
was a shift that came on and now is going off in sort of a spelling pronunciation. Yeah, I'd quite agree with that. More and more people are saying Monday, Tuesday. It's a terrific marker of a certain old-fashioned RP, for example. Uh, there are many Canadians who do it um, in uh, their sort of ang- anglophilic kind of way. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I have to say, uh, now that you mention it, that I've heard it in Cockneys as well, Monday, Tuesday. So uh, it's an older form, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think there's uh, a, an e- interesting thing. When we think of uh, this final sound, uh, it does get stronger in certain settings, in particular mm-hmm. if it comes at the end of a phrase. So, for instance, um, we're talking about the city of New York. Uh, in that context, city is in the midst of a, a phrase, so it's going to be weaker. But if I live in New York City, that final expression, the final sound, is going to be longer and it's going to be stronger, too. So it's going to have more of an E-like sound to it. That's a a terrific reminder, too, to our students that no matter how much we tell them this is the sound we'd like you to make or we'd like you to make it in this accent, there is an incredible amount of variation based on the improvisation that is language. Mm -hmm. And we don't even necessarily need to point out to a student that they'll say city and city based on context, because they'll probably naturally do it. Of course, if they have a very different accent model and we're trying to get them to a different one, then we might have to point it out. It's helpful when people are trying to identify it because their assumption is that, oh, I don't do it. See, I say New York City, and I do this E sound. So uh, it's helpful to remind people that final sounds are always a little bit different, a little bit longer. They have that falling inflection, which lengthens the sound out. Um, the other thing is that before another vowel, it's also likely to be stronger as we use a, a tensor uh, articulation to kick us into the next vowel, to articulate the shift from vowel to vowel. So the city of New York switching into a vowel make, might make that a little bit, uh, a little bit stronger. Um, yeah, so you, you might say hilarious because you really need that distinction, especially if you were moving from an E to an E or an I to an I, you would want to make some distinction or it would just merge together into a single sound. Right. Uh, Initiate, maybe. Uh, I guess there's a question there whether some sounds, which are happy sounds, uh, can be said, some accents, as a schwa. And this might be the distinction between prefixes and suffixes. Uh, there are certainly accents where, uh, accents where I would say believe, and one of my students might say believe, but another student would say believe. Right. So there's three degrees there of that sound. What uh, we, might, uh, we have to talk about this thing, schwa, that you brought up, um, sort of yes. universal weak sound. Um, it mm-hmm. uh, replaces so many reduced vowels they reduce down to uh, um, and that sort of middle of the mouth sound is uh, very commonly used, um, whereas uh, there are other vowels that have weak versions. For instance, there are weak i sounds in dialects that or accents that have uh, a difference, uh, something like rosa, like uh, 
you know, Rosa's Cantina, uh, compared to roses, the flowers, they'll have distinct a uh, schwa in that last syllable and roses with a kit vowel. Um, and if we compare that with rosies, um, so the, that happy vowel, so we get roses, roses, and rosies, they're all slightly different, more close than the one that preceded it. Uh, absolutely. I've even heard people refer to this uh, form of happy vowel as shui, as uh, <laughs> as uh, the e version of schwa, and the u version, like in influence, called shwu. Um, now, that's not a commonly used term, but it is cute, and I, I'm always it an figures. advocate for <laughs> cuteness. Um, so, uh, th- so I also could have some... Oh, go I, for I it. I wanted to say one other thing, and that is that we can have final E vowels that aren't reduced in words mm-hmm. like manatee. Uh, if you compare humanity with the ocean dweller, the manatee, uh, that it doesn't reduce in the same way that uh, humanity does. If I was someone who used an I sound, I would say humanity for the manatee, and that I would actually differentiate those, those vowels. Indeed. Uh, there, there was something on the roses, rosies. Uh, th- there is a Scottish version of this in which an is ending, as in phrases, the, will be moved all the way to E. Uh, when I first heard it, I thought it was sort of a cute diminutive. I'm uh, going to teach you these phrases. Right. But it was a fully strengthened, fully fleece ending. I, I haven't heard it very much, but it's, it's certainly present. So I don't have a sense of whether it's historically shifting, but it's certainly found in the wild in Scotland. And their kit vowel isn't that vowel. Yes. They're so, not saying uh, kit. They're saying kit. Yeah, exactly. I'll hit these phrases. Uh, so there's a real distinction there. Uh, again, when territories are shifted between phonemes, it is useful for other things to shift so that there's distinction between words. Well, and it also is a good point to bring up the fact that lexical sets were based upon general American and RP. And so uh, groups of words may behave differently in other accents. And so we can't assume that every Every uh, lexical set will apply to every accent. Indeed. Uh, okay. Well, what else do we need to talk about here? Uh, this, this, you know, because of the way we've discussed where it could happen, it could happen in both checked and free syllables. I think part of the reasons why some people feel so strongly that it has to be an e sound, regardless of what's coming out of their mouth, is they feel it's a free vowel and that i yeah. is a checked vowel, and so. You can't be saying happy because it's not possible to say happy in English. Um, and so it, it feels like it's breaking the rules that they, there's no way that they could say this e, this e sound in a free, free setting, free syllable. Yeah. Um, so do we want to talk briefly about, uh, the phonetic notation in the international yeah. phonetic alphabet? The, the, what, what do you do when you encounter a word like this? Uh, I, I have to give a little bit of history, which says something about the way we voice and speech teachers use phonetics historically. Uh, there's a tendency, a tendency that I object to, of coming up with the right way of transcribing it and using that as a way of sort of 
pushing a single pronunciation. Mm. And so when I first learned it, uh, I learned it with uh, an I, that is to say a lowercase capital I representing the I sound. Uh, to which I and all my fellow students objected strenuously because it was far away from the way we pronounced it, uh, and to which, in fact, my teacher, Dudley Knight, objected but had not yet formulated his response to that. Nowadays, he and I probably still disagree about how we most commonly transcribe it. Uh, he's uh, an advocate, probably because of the way he himself pronounces the word, of using a lowering diacritic underneath an E, uh, mm. a simple I, simple. So if I were to pronounce that, I would say pretty city. Now, I tend to use a mid-centering symbol, uh, which shifts the E towards the I. So if there was a distinction between a lowered E and a mid-centralized E, let's see if I can do that, pretty, pretty. Maybe there's a difference, maybe not. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny one. What, what's the mid-centralizing diacritic? Yeah, that's an X that goes above usually the symbol. Uh, I love that because it, it sort of indicates the center of the chart. It's like X marks mm. the spot. Right. Uh, also, the lowering symbol we didn't mention is, is a sort of a thumbtack pointing downwards. Uh, right. Uh, a T, in a way. Now, um, now I I uh, have been using the barred I, and uh, I think partly that comes from uh, a certain laziness <laughs> that uh, it was available in my IPA font. That was part of it. Um, yes, that with one I keystroke. And I was never using it um, <laughs> for other purposes. Um, so I, I kind of appropriated it uh, to, to use it. And the other fact of the matter is that uh, there is kind of a tradition amongst, uh, I think perhaps more in North America than in the UK, to use the barred I as a, a, you know, sort of a, a broad symbol to represent this sound that could be a bit more centralized. Um, yeah. I, I certainly understand that, and, I, and I've certainly seen that and, and used it myself. The thing that, I, that prevents me from going there is that the barred eye on the chart represents a very high tongue position, even though it is a centralized tongue position. And as I say it in my, in my own mouth, pretty city, I, I feel like I'd have to work a bit more to get up that high. Mm -hmm. All of those, though... Uh, all of the descriptions we've been making have been phonetic descriptions of the sounds that we're hearing. So the answer to the question, what's the right symbol to use, is what did the guy say? Hmm. And that's always the case with this. And it's really important, I think, for us to remind ourselves, because sometimes when speech teachers use phonetics, they consciously or subconsciously use it as evidence of authority. Hmm. Here's the symbol, don't you see? Uh, there's a whole world of scholarship behind me, so you have to pronounce it the way I say it. Right. So it's a prescriptive process that we, yeah. we're going to follow the, the, the road map that lies before us that is the IPA symbol. And, and in fact, people talk about doing uh, IPA or doing phonetics 
meaning essentially using the symbols as a way to apply a certain speech standard to the way they speak. Yeah. And uh, that, that uh, you know, ultimately deciding which way you're going to symbolize a sound, you, there are a number of different choices that uh, lie f- in front of you. And if you pick one, as long as you're clear as to why you're picking that symbol to represent the sound that you're hearing and sort of give a caveat or some sort of footnote that says, I'm using this symbol for the following reasons to represent yeah. this sound, then generally that's okay. Um, that we have to make a, a convention that we stick to, yes. and as long as we don't muck around with it, people will be able to figure that out and apply that. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's shorthand. Yeah. Y- you know, I, I I probably shouldn't get into this, but I'll, I'll I'll tell a little story that I'm sure you know, but this might be interesting for those listening, that there were other versions of the IPA or of phonetic notation that were proposed, and one of them was proposed by Alexander Graham Bell and his father, Herman Melville Bell, is that right? Uh, Melville Bell? Don't know. Ah, well. uh, They had a system which they used to teach deaf children, which used parts of the symbol to indicate the physical action of speech. And it was a very elaborate, very beautiful system of writing with these sort of ornate conch shells with thick bars indicating voicing, I think, and uh, more curly on the lower bit and so forth. They were very accurate and useful for deaf children because you could look at the symbol and deconstruct or reconstruct, rather, the the sound that was being suggested. But they were impossible to read Mm. because we're all used to reading letters, and when you look at one of these things, it just looks like beautiful calligraphy, and you can't figure it out. So... We're always using recognizable symbols in order to indicate what it is that we're trying to say. We can be pretty precise with it, but frankly, as I I said, this is just a shorthand for description of physical action. And Mm -hmm. if we were crazy people, we would describe every single sound we make in terms of the position of the tongue, how far up, how far back, whether it's voiced or not voiced, but that would be impossibly complex, so we use a shorthand instead. Exactly. Uh, it turns out that uh, his name was Alexander Melville Bell. Ah, that, I put Herman Melville because of the author. That's, that's what of I course. did. So. Uh, so I think that we may have covered everything we need to cover about happy. Am I right? Well, I, we haven't talked a little bit about variations. We haven't talked about, you know, the the on-glide that still exists. We get, uh, you know, yeah. happy in some instances. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my favorite is the Scots uh, eh, happy, uh, and all the way to Nottingham, where they're going to say happy. So it's really, you know, I, I have a little clip of uh, oh, a guy uh, from Nottingham saying, uh, using the sound. And the allotment garden fed the family. So that was, and the allotment garden fed the family, uh, and family. Uh, play it one more time. Yeah. And the allotment garden fed the family. So is that an eh? It's almost an eh well, sound. Uh, let's try a little experiment, because it'll be my turn to edit this episode, right? Sure. So uh, I'll insert somewhere in here, after you've done that sound, a lengthened version of it. And we'll be able to find out whether it's 
hafte or hafte. Uh, it'll give us some indication of where the realization is. Because as we said at the very beginning, it's hard to focus our minds or our ears on unstressed sounds because they're very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And the moment we focus on them, we do something to them, either perceptually or physically in the way we make them. Right. So uh, that'll be fun. And the allotment garden fed the family. The family. The other thing to note is that uh, this is changing in different parts of the world and that in the UK in particular, this final sound is tensing. It's becoming more of an E sound. Um, and uh, we, we know that because we can track the Queen's speech. Yes. And uh, this is a great story in the Journal of International Phonetic Alphabet, uh, uh, of the Phonetic Association. Uh, they have... Uh, published an article about the evolution of the Queen's E, her happy tensing. Uh, The happy sound is getting more tense. Um, And in that study, they found not only was her happy getting more tense, but her kit was dramatically more tense than it was 50 years ago. Um, But most people don't notice that her kit is dramatically more tense than it was. Um, but that uh, this this feature of the happy sound in words like uh, duty and family, which she says those a lot in her her speeches, my family, um, it's becoming far more e-like, um, and uh, it's a good proof that people's speech doesn't stay the same. Mm-hmm. I, I think many people assume that one's speech gets kind of solidified or codified. Um, around the time you reach adulthood and stays pretty much the same through your whole lifetime. And uh, that's clearly not the case for the Queen, that her speech is evolving and changing. Now, some people argue that the reason why the Queen's broadcasts sound different is because the Queen's sense of formality has Hmm. changed, that when she first did her broadcasts, she read them in a very stiff manner. And... uh, 50 years of doing them has taught her to be a little bit more informal and that she may have been just as, uh, had the same sounds 50 years ago when she was speaking informally. We just never got to hear her that in that manner. Um, I, well, I, it is, I suspect it's a bit of both. Yes, and it's one way of thinking. Uh, the, the way in which I say happy is incredibly variable based on those factors. And so it's always a scale. Whether it's a uh, synchronic or a diachronic scale, whether it's changing over time or just changing based on uh, context, it, it, it's still a meaningful difference, and it's still one that we can notice and and play with as as performers. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that's that's basically our show for this week. I think we've Excellent. kind of gone to our happy ending, and. Uh, <laughs> So uh, next week we'll be doing uh, uh, another set of consonants. I suppose we'll be doing k and g next. It makes sense. And uh, uh, then we will have completed the plosives at that. Or, well, the most common English plosives, I guess I'd better say. Yes, yes. And I suspect that uh, our next vowel sound will probably be schwa. I think that's uh, an important one to do next because it's going to come up for 
in our conversations about other vowels in the future. So let's move to schwa as our next vowel. Excellent. So if you have any questions for us, please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the best way to reach us is by email, uh, glossonomia at gmail.com. Of course, we'd love to actually hear from you. So if you are able to make a recording of your voice and send your question as an audio comment, then we can take that and put it into the show and we can have you join the conversation. Um, Perfect. And uh, one last thing, that if you are listening to us through iTunes, uh, then if you have any comments about the show, if you have any criticisms, we'd love to hear about them by email. But if you want to say some nice things, it would be great <laughs> to have you give us a little review in the uh, iTunes review section. Um, and if you're not listening to us through iTunes and want to, just search for Glossonomia through the search field in the iTunes store. Great. Well, uh, it's been a great week, and I look forward to talking to you again, Phil. Likewise. Take care. Okay, bye.